Tonight's reading is Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these people who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirits in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father 
the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God had made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is God's word. Good evening. If we've not met, my name's Phil. I'm the Associate Minister here. It's lovely to have you with us, especially if you're uh, here for the first time. Um, Hopefully I'll get a chance to to meet you maybe at Connect later. Let's pray. And if you keep a finger on that page in the Bible, we're going to work our way through that passage. Uh, Father God, we pray that you would help us to know tonight that uh, we are not playing a religious game. We pray that we would know the presence of the real, the almighty, the living and active God amongst us by his spirit. But more than that, I pray that each of us might know individually that spirit in us through faith in Christ. We ask this for your glory and in his name. Amen. Now, Acts 2 is all about the Holy Spirit. And we can get a little bit confused about the Holy Spirit, I think. If you, if you know anything about Christianity, you probably know, other than Jesus walked on water, you probably know that the, yeah, the Trinity thing, there's uh, one God, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God. And we can kind of get our heads around Father. Um, most of us have known a Father and, and, and Son. Many of us are sons, but Spirit? It's like the sort of awkward uncle at the family reunion. No one knows what to do with, theologically. And the old translation, Holy Ghost, it does capture something of just the weirdness. Just a bit confused, really. Now, let me make things clear from the beginning. You've got it on your sheet. You can summarize the Bible's teaching about the Holy Spirit as he is God's personal, powerful presence on earth. There you go. There's lots more you could say, but at the heart, the Holy Spirit is God's personal, powerful presence on earth. So when we talk about God the Spirit, we're not talking about some uh, Star Wars-esque force, some impersonal thing. Always the Spirit is He in Scripture, a person, just like the Father and the Son. Now, the, the Spirit appears right at the beginning hovering over the new creation, and then appears kind of sporadically through the Old Testament, Uh, empowers uh, people like the kings and the prophets and the temple craftsmen, gives people specific abilities for a specific job for a specific period of time. But all that changes with Pentecost in Acts 2. What was temporary and sporadic becomes permanent and absolutely universal as the Holy Spirit is poured out by God on all his people. And the impact will be that this very ordinary group of men and women will turn the world upside down, and they'll do so without an army, without political power, 
without financial wealth, without cultural capital. They won't need any of those things to turn the, the Roman Empire on its head because they have the power of Almighty God in them by his Spirit. Now, here's why this matters. Whether you're interested in theological things or not, this really matters to you and me tonight because that same power that transformed the lives of those ordinary men and women 2,000 years ago is here tonight and is available to each and every one of us if we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes I think that the Christian life whether you're still looking into it or whether you've been living as a Christian for a while, it can feel just really hard. And sometimes it can look so hard, you think, I'm just not even sure I want to try. And in many ways, it's, um, following Jesus feels like being given a very, very heavy bicycle to push. Roll with me on this, quite literally. But the, what I mean is uh, there's some things that are good about having a really heavy bicycle. Downhill, that's lovely. You're forgiven. You have eternal hope as a Christian. Wee, wonderful. You whiz downhill. Most of life, they're just slog of pushing along. Well, that's hard. Most of the Christian life, we're serving other people, putting them first. Yeah, it's not always, not always easy doing God's will when I don't always want to. And then there are the uphills. And if you're pushing a heavy bike uphill, it can feel like, oh, it's just impossible. Maybe in our culture, obeying, the God, obeying God's word and sexual ethics or, or actually being open about my faith and telling others about Christ in the office or the university. Those things just feel really heavy. But then what if somebody tells you, uh, your very heavy bicycle is not just a very heavy bicycle, it's heavy because it's an e-bicycle. You just need to turn it on. There's a very powerful motor actually built in wonderfully. You see, learning about the Holy Spirit is learning that the Christian life has a motor built in. That's what's going on. And my prayer tonight really is that whether you're new to this or familiar with it, we're reminded and learn of the great power of God that he has given to us by his Holy Spirit. So we'll be confident that we can live for Christ and we want to live for Christ. There's always forgiveness when we fail, which we all do, but there is also his power. Now, um, as Matt said at the beginning, we're in Acts, uh, doctor and historian Luke charting the spread of the Jesus movement from a few people in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. By the end of, the act of Acts, it's reached Rome, the, the, the center of the empire, access to the whole world, really. And Acts 2 is the explosive start to the Jesus movement. But just before we get there, one other question, because one big question as we work through Acts is we just have to answer, is what I'm reading about here a kind of unique one-off unrepeatable thing that happened then? Or is it a normative pattern, something we should expect to see today as well? And that's really important. Is it describing something that was just for then or prescribing something for you and me today? Now, we get that some things, I think, are one-off. So we don't look back at Jesus' death and resurrection and say, wow, that's amazing. Gosh, that's so exciting. I really hope that this week at our church, Jesus will come and die and be raised again too. What? No, 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 no. He doesn't need to. That's a kind of one-off thing. He doesn't need to do it again. And Pentecost falls in that category. It is a one-off event that has an impact for the rest of history. So, and you can tell that really, actually, uh, just from looking in this passage. We'll see it as we go through the rest of Acts. But the 3,000 people who become followers of Jesus because they respond to Peter's sermon. They don't then have another Pentecost for them. They don't need to. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all the believers in Jerusalem, 
And so they don't need another Pentecost. They just put their trust in Jesus and receive the Spirit. So it's, it's kind of like the difference between wedding and a marriage. So every day of married life is not a wedding. That would be deeply expensive and horrifically impractical. I mean, can you imagine going to work every day in a billowy white dress, especially if you commute on a bike? It would just be pretty strange. They, no, no, the, the wedding day is a wonderful thing, but it's, it's one day. But it affects everything. Those vows, they, they, they should affect the whole of the rest of life. And Pentecost is like that. It's this one-off unique event where the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church and then it transforms all of history for God's people afterwards. So you and I, we don't need Pentecost to happen again. Wonderfully. All we need to do if we want to see the Spirit's power in our lives, is to believe and lean into what we learn here. Right, enough faffing around. Let's get in. So, just two points for you. Um, Firstly, event, and then explanation. Event, the Holy Spirit was poured out on Jesus' followers. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So Pentecost is one of the three great Jewish festivals. It takes place 50 days after the Passover, um, Greek word for 50, and you can read about it in Leviticus 23. Now, the apostles and Jesus' followers, so about 120 of them we learned in Acts 1, they've done what Jesus said. They've gone back to Jerusalem to wait for him to pour out the Holy Spirit. But they're not the only visitors to Jerusalem at this time. Tens of thousands of devout Jewish pilgrims would have gathered in the city at this time. And it's during this festival that Jesus fulfills his promise to send his Spirit. Verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now, three things to note about this event. It is supernatural. It is individual and it's missional. Supernatural, individual, and missional. This is a supernatural event. It is not real wind and flames. We're told it's something that sounds like wind and and looks like fire. Luke is, is groping for sort of earthly language to describe the heavenly realities that were witnessed on that day. But why those two things, wind and fire? Well, in the Old Testament, God's Spirit is described as his breath or as a mighty wind that brings spiritual life to the dead, especially in Ezekiel 37, them them bones, them bones, them dry bones, that chapter. The breath of God is breathed out. And as the mighty wind moves amongst the skeletons, they come to life. It's God's life-giving breath. And then in Exodus, God appears to Moses in a burning bush and he leads the children of Israel out of Egypt as a pillar of fire. So here you have God's holy fire and God's life-giving breath coming down upon his people. This is not a psychological phenomenon. 
where they suddenly start believing in, in their power to do things. This is not a human ritual. It's a supernatural act of the Spirit of God coming upon his people. Supernatural. Secondly, it's individual. I mean, it almost seems too obvious to state, but Luke tells us that the tongues of fire separated and rested on each of them. Verse 3. The Spirit doesn't come on the church in general. No, he comes to each and every one of us. Now, Peter stresses this actually in his sermon. Verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams, both men and women. And it's not just the apostles. This isn't God's endowment for the elite leaders. That becomes, I mean, it's, it's hinted in Joel's sermon, uh, Joel, the quotation from Joel I just read. But it becomes clear, I think, in verses 8 to 11. 17 different groups are listed as hearing the preaching in their native language. 12 apostles, 17 different languages. It seems most likely that Luke isn't listing all of the, the different nations, just a selection of them that spread around the, the Mediterranean. But the Spirit comes on all God's people. And so far more than just the apostles are preaching about Jesus at this point. And you'll see through the rest of Acts that the Spirit comes on all his people. Supernatural, individual, and lastly, it's missional. If you remember, we've seen each week Acts 1.8, Jesus' programmatic statement You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What happens when the Spirit is poured out on the believers in Jerusalem? What happens? They begin speaking in the languages of the ends of the earth, as the Spirit enables them. Now, I hope you see, it's not a miracle of hearing. It's not they preach about Jesus in Aramaic, but amazingly, the people can hear as if they're being spoken to in their own languages. Now, verse 4 is clear. They were given miraculous ability to speak other tongues, just in other words, the languages. And as Luke recounts the crowd's response in verse 8, he mentions that they're from the breadth of the world, the known world anyway. So the Spirit is not given for the church's entertainment, so that weird stuff happens in our services, or or for my self-fulfillment. The Spirit is sent to enable the church to fulfill the mission of Jesus, to take the message of his salvation to all the peoples of the earth. It becomes even clearer when you realize, and I'm not sure about this, but I think this is right. It seems Peter stands up and preaches, probably in Aramaic, and they all understand him. In verses 14 to 40, we're not told that lots they're all translating for him. So it seems that Peter speaks Aramaic, and they all seem to understand him in the crowd. So they probably could have understood if the apostles had just stood up and preached because these are all Jewish people, they would have probably spoken the kind of Jewish dialect, the Aramaic. They've all come to Jerusalem for the festival. They probably all would have understood. That's why Peter just preaches to them in Aramaic. But the Spirit enables them to speak in different languages into the home, the native, the heart languages of these people as a sign, a sign to the apostles and to everyone else, that this message of Jesus, this gospel, is to be taken out everywhere, to everyone in their cultures and their languages. The gospel is for all. 
If you're wondering uh, what you make of all of that, you're in very good company because we're told the response in verse 12 was amazed and perplexed. The crowd asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, oh, they've had too much wine. I mean, it must be quite a sight. These Galilean peasants, largely, uh, a group who are looked down on by Jerusalem's metropolitan elite as sort of uncouth northern oafs, the, the uncultured ones from up in Galilee. And yet here they are, excitedly speaking fluently dozens of different languages. No wonder some mock them as babbling drunkards because when they're hearing languages they don't know, it just sounds like babbling. And the Galileans are probably just drunk. And so Peter stands up and explains it for them and thankfully for us. So explanation, secondly, because Jesus is both Messiah and Lord. This is why this is why this happens. We're not going to work through this in detail because there's too much here, but we're just going to skim through. 14, then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your, old, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show you wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter says, look, what's happening now shouldn't be a surprise. It was promised about in the Old Testament, in the Bible. It's a fulfillment of God's promise. The prophet Joel promised the day would come when God's spirit would be poured out on all people. And the sign that had happened would be people prophesying. That is, Peter says, what's going on? People speaking about the wonders of God, proclaiming the truth about Jesus. But then Peter turns away from the old prophecy to recent event that seems to have absolutely nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep hold of him. It seems like a sort of crunching of gears. What? I thought you were explaining about the Holy Spirit. And now you say, let me tell you about Jesus. Let's stick with him. He teaches, look, the Jesus who was crucified just over a month earlier in Jerusalem, many of you were probably there, where he's been raised to life, resurrected. And he then goes back to Psalm 16 to explain why Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Psalm 16 is a psalm written by King David a thousand years beforehand. And David saw that God's true king couldn't be abandoned to the grave. Now, David himself rotted in a grave in Jerusalem. But these words are fulfilled in the life of great David's greatest son, his descendant Jesus, who, unlike David, didn't stay dead, has not got a grave. He says this proves Jesus is the true king or Messiah. He then turns... Um, to another psalm of David, Psalm 110, uh, down in uh, verse 34 to 35. And Jesus is not just an earthly king, he says there, but the Lord who sits at God's right hand, 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And verse 33 shows us why Peter has jumped to Jesus when he's meant to be explaining about the Holy Spirit to us. We'll start at 32. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. In other words, David wrote these Old Testament Psalms that are fulfilled in Jesus. He is the true king, the true Lord. And because he is the one who's risen from the dead and ascended to reign at God's right hand, he is the one who has the right to pour out the Holy Spirit. And that's why the Holy Spirit has come now in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, because Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. And then it gets ugly. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is God's king. He's the one at the right hand of God. He's the Lord of all the universe. He's the only one through whom you can receive the Holy Spirit. And you nailed him to a cross and killed him. No wonder they're cut to the heart. And they say, what can we do? But thankfully, Peter can respond with hope. When the people heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is hope because the death of Jesus Christ, as verse 23 tells us, is not just a a wicked crime committed by hate-fueled, God-hating men. It's also a sacrificial act planned by the loving God. Jesus doesn't die as a hapless victim, but as a willing sacrifice, absorbing the punishment of our sins on the cross so that we can be forgiven. And verse 41 says, about 3,000 accepted this message and were baptized and joined the church. Wonderful, but what's the significance for you and for me? Okay, so... Come to Jesus, you get forgiven and you receive the Holy Spirit. What's the, okay, if I'm familiar with that, what's the take home? What's the value added for me? Well, two things. First, the Spirit is God's presence proving our forgiveness in Jesus. That's the first thing I want us to see, the link between forgiveness and receiving the Spirit. It's put most clearly, I think, in verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why do those two things come together? Because the Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God. Come back with me. Way back at the dawn of human history, we're told in Genesis 3 that because our ancestors did what we would do, and they sinned, could not have them in his presence. He would have to destroy them because he's just. And so they were driven out of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword was put at the entrance to keep us away from the presence of God. And since that day, no human has been able to safely approach the perfect holy God. But if God's spirit can come and dwell in our hearts, 
then our sins must have been dealt with in full. Then we don't need to feel crushed by, by feelings of guilt and shame. We don't need to believe Satan's lies and condemnation. Because if God's spirit lives in you, then your sin must be dealt with, must be gone. There are a few things I think that we Brits do well, queuing being one of them and pomp and pageantry doing the, being the other. So the last couple of weeks, we've just hit our sweet spot. I mean, you've got to say. Um, but the, the pomp and pageantry, we do have down to a fine art. And I did feel slightly proud, um, although I had nothing to do with any of it, of course. Um, and I suspect, I suspect most of us watched at least a bit of the, the Queen's funeral this week. And whatever you make of the monarchy, you couldn't help but be impressed, I think, by the military escort. I mean, they were gleaming perfection. Absolutely incredible. Every uniform spotlessly, microscopically clean. Every morsel of metal, every scrap of leather polished with an inch of its life until it was reflective like a mirror. I spoke to one of the soldiers who was on, and he just said, you do not want to know how much time I spent polishing last week in the build-up to the funeral. But why? Why all of that immaculate polish? Well, so that the soldiers would be a fitting and appropriate escort to accompany the dead body of a human queen. Imagine how radical the cleansing, the polishing of our souls of the filth of sin must be if we're not just to accompany but to be a permanent home for the living spirit of holy God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 describes your body, if you trust in Jesus, as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps more than anything else the Bible teaches, the gift of the Holy Spirit ought to impress on our hearts the magnitude of our forgiveness. This is not, I forgive you, but there's a frosty silence for the next few weeks. This is not, I forgive you, but there will always now be a distance in our friendship. This is, I forgive you, and that forgiveness is so total and deals so completely with what you did that I want to come and live with you forever. So lift up your head. I wasn't quite sure how to summarize what our response should be. So feel confident in your forgiveness. Rejoice in the promise that you're a child of God. Resist the waves of guilt and shame. Yep, all of that. But I wonder if I can summarize it as lift up your head. I mean, think about it. If you trust in Jesus, then Almighty God in all his blazing purity looks at you and says, this is where I want my home to be, in you. What a privilege. Yeah. Various towns in Britain have not just a name, but a title. There's Royal Leamington Spa, Royal Berkshire, and Bognor Regis. It had to have the Latin version because Bognor is such a poor-sounding name that you need something Latin to lift it up. So Bognor of the King, Bognor Regis. They're places that are given those titles because royalty stayed there. That means... You are not just plain old you if you trust in the Lord Jesus. 
You are Royal Thomas. Royal Janelle. Royal Tara. Royal Caroline. Now, some of us are naturally down on ourselves. Uh, We walk through life metaphorically with our heads bowed, with feelings of unworthiness or guilt or insecurity and just a gnawing sense of inadequacy inside. Lift up your head. When you put your trust in Jesus, God did a work of forgiveness and grace in you that makes you a fitting home for his Holy Spirit, for the King of the universe. Others, I guess, have a bit too much swagger, but how utterly ridiculous to walk around because of the university I went to or my sporting prowess or my looks or my social ability. How pathetic. <laughs> when God has given us by grace his divine presence living in us personally, permanently, with all his power, why on earth would I take pride in any pathetic achievement of myself or family or or corporate identity. Who cares about that stuff? The Spirit lives in you. So lift up your head, not in pride, but in a humble confidence that although all of us are hell-deserving sinners, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has made you a home for his Holy Spirit if you trust in him. Secondly, lastly, the Spirit is God's power enabling our witness about Jesus. It's clear here the Spirit is not the divine magician for entertainment. Now, God is God, so let's be humble. He can do what he wants. But Jesus makes it explicitly clear in Acts 1.8 that the main work, the foundational work of the Holy Spirit is the power for courageous mission. You will receive power and you'll be my witnesses to all the peoples of the earth. The Spirit's foundational work is to give you and me the power, the courage, the love to tell others about Jesus. People sometimes say to me, I wish we saw more of the Holy Spirit in our church. And hey, I would not be complaining if we saw more of the Holy Spirit in our church. But let's not be blind, actually, to what he's already doing. I think sometimes when we say that, we mean crazy things happening in meetings. But look around. The last couple of years, three young men have left promising careers to share the good news of Jesus in Muslim-majority countries where there's serious opposition to Christians. The last couple of months, a girl the evening who'd never really spoken to non-Christians about her faith said that she'd found the courage recently to set up a Christian meeting at work and to invite colleagues to hear about Jesus. Ellen going out to speak to Londoners in the park, and she just couldn't have imagined doing this a couple of years ago. Think of a man in the morning, the top of his profession, who gave it up at the height of the prestige and earning power to learn how to teach the Bible and help spread the gospel amongst office workers. Think of a lady who gave up the dream that she was enjoying of a lovely house in the country because she thought, no, I want to come. I want to learn how to teach others about Jesus better and how to help others to do so more. There are lots and lots of stories like that amongst us. Of course we'd love to see more. And of course there's all sorts of flaws in this church. But that sounds like the work of the Spirit I read about in Acts. And so I rejoice as I think about and pray for this church. And because that Spirit is at work amongst us, speak with confidence. 
We won't all be able to preach like Peter did, but we need to stop acting as if I can only do what by my natural gifts and abilities I can. Stop telling ourselves, I I could never speak about Jesus to my friends. Too timid. I'm not clever enough. I don't know enough. The American theologian Francis Chan, church founder Francis Chan, writes, we are not all we were made to be when everything in our lives and churches can be explained apart from the work and presence of the Spirit of God. To become a Christian is to turn from the double-A batteries of my own abilities and plug into the mains power of Jesus Christ by his Spirit. So read, believe, and act on that promise. The Spirit of God lives in you. Yield to his work, and then act in faith. Love, serve, and especially speak of Jesus as if you expect that you might see him work. Who knows what we might see? Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that amongst all your wonderful gifts, we have the greatest gift of all, you, by your Spirit, come to dwell in us permanently. Help us, we pray, to see what that means, what that tells us about how wonderful your work of forgiveness is, and also to, uh, to, to believe it, and therefore to seek to be witnesses to Christ in your power. And we ask this for your glory and the growth of your kingdom. Amen.